Section 34, Part 5 of Chapter 8 of the Commentaries on the Laws of England, Book 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Commentaries on the Laws of England by William Blackstone. Book 1, Chapter 8, Part 5. 8. The eighth and last branch of the King's extraordinary perpetual revenue is the duty upon offices and pensions, consisting in a payment of one shilling in the pound, over and above all other duties, out of salaries, fees, and perquisites of offices and pensions payable by the Crown. This highly popular taxation was imposed by statute 31st George the Second, c. 22, and is under the direction of the commissioners of the land tax. The clear, neat produce of these several branches of the revenue, after all charges of collecting and management paid, amounts annually to about seven millions and three-quarters sterling, besides two millions and a quarter raised annually, at an average, by the land and malt tax. How these immense sums are appropriated is next to be considered, and this is, first and principally, to the payment of the interest of the national debt. In order to take a clear and comprehensive view of the nature of this national debt, it must first be premised, that after the revolution, when our new connections with Europe introduced a new system of foreign politics, the expenses of the nation, not only in settling the new establishment, but in maintaining long wars as principles on the continent, for the security of the Dutch barrier, reducing the French monarchy, settling the Spanish succession, supporting the House of Austria, maintaining the liberties of the Germanic body, and other purposes, increased to an unusual degree, insomuch that it was not thought advisable to raise all the expenses of any one year by taxes to be levied within that year, lest the unaccustomed weight of them should create murmurs among the people. It was therefore the policy of the times to anticipate the revenues of their posterity, by borrowing immense sums for the current service of the state, and to lay no more taxes upon the subject than would suffice to pay the annual interest of the sum so borrowed, by this means converting the principal debt into a new species of property, transferable from one man to another at any time and in any quantity. A system which seems to have had its original in the state of Florence, A.D. 1344, which government then owed about sixty thousand pounds sterling, and being unable to pay it, formed the principal into an aggregate sum, called, metaphorically, a mount or bank, the shares whereof were transferable like our stocks, with interest at five per cent. The price is varying according to the exigencies of the state. This laid the foundation of what is called the national debt, for a few long annuities created in the reign of Charles the Second will hardly deserve that name. And the example, then set, has been so closely followed during the long wars in the reign of Queen Anne, and since the capital of the national debt, funded and unfunded, amounted in January 1765 upwards of one hundred and forty-five million pounds sterling, to pay the interest of which, and the charges for management, amounting annually to about four millions and three-quarters, the revenues just enumerated are in the first place mortgaged, and made perpetual by Parliament. Perpetual, I say, but still redeemable by the same authority that imposed them, which, if at any time can pay off the capital, will abolish those taxes which are raised to discharge the interest. By this means the quantity of property in the kingdom is greatly increased in idea, compared with former times, yet, if we coolly consider it, not at all increased in reality. We may boast of large fortunes, and quantities of money in the funds, but where does this money exist? It exists only in name, in paper, in public faith, in parliamentary security, 
and that is undoubtedly sufficient for the creditors of the public to rely on. But then, what is the pledge which the public faith has pawned for the security of these debts? The land, the trade, and the personal industry of the subject, from which the money must arise, that supplies the several taxes. In these, therefore, and these only, the property of the public creditors does really and intrinsically exist, and of course the land, the trade, and the personal industry of individuals, are diminished in their true value just so much as they are pledged to answer. If A's income amounts to one hundred pounds per annum, and he is so far indebted to B, that he pays him fifty pounds per annum for his interest, one half of the value of A's property is transferred to B, the creditor. The creditor's property exists in the demand which he has upon the debtor and nowhere else, and the debtor is only a trustee to his creditor for one half of the value of his income. In short, the property of a creditor of the public consists in a certain portion of the national taxes. By how much, therefore, he is the richer, by so much the nation, which pays these taxes, is the poorer. The only advantage that can result to a nation from public debts is the increase of circulation by multiplying the cash of the kingdom, and creating a new species of money, always ready to be employed in any beneficial undertaking, by means of its transferable quality, and yet productive of some profit, even when it lies idle and unemployed. A certain proportion of debt seems therefore to be highly useful to a trading people, but what that proportion is, it is not for me to determine. This much is undisputably certain, that the present magnitude of our national encumbrances very far exceeds all calculations of commercial benefit, and is productive of the greatest inconveniences. For first, the enormous taxes that are raised upon the necessaries of life for the payment of the interest of this debt are a hurt both to trade and manufactures, by raising the price as well of the artificer's subsistence, as of the raw material, and of course, in a much greater proportion, the price of the commodity itself. Secondly, if part of this debt be owing to foreigners, either they draw out of the kingdom annually a considerable quantity of specie, for the interest, or else it is made an argument to grant them unreasonable privileges in order to induce them to reside here. Thirdly, if the whole be owing to subjects only, it is then charging the active and industrious subject, who pays his share of the taxes, to maintain the indolent and idle creditor who receives them. Lastly, and principally, it weakens the internal strength of a state, by anticipating those resources which should be reserved to defend it in case of necessity. The interest we now pay for our debts would be nearly sufficient to maintain any war that any national motives could require. And if our ancestors in King William's time had annually paid, so long as their exigencies lasted, even a less sum than we now annually raise upon their accounts, they would in the time of war have borne no greater burdens than they have bequeathed to and settled upon their posterity in time of peace, and might have been eased the instant the exigence was over. The produce of the several taxes before mentioned were originally separate and distinct funds, being securities for the sums advanced on each several tax, and for them only. But at last it became necessary, in order to avoid confusion, as they multiplied yearly, to reduce the number of these separate funds, by uniting and blending them together, superadding the faith of Parliament for the general security of the whole. So that there are now only three capital funds of any account, the aggregate fund and the general fund, so called from such union and addition, and the South Sea Fund, being the produce of the taxes appropriated to pay the interest of such part of the national debt as was advanced by that company and its annuitants, 
whereby the separate funds, which were thus united, are become mutual securities for each other, and the whole produce of them, thus aggregated, is liable to pay such interest or annuities as were formerly charged upon each distinct fund, the faith of the legislature being moreover engaged to supply any casual deficiencies. The customs, excises, and other taxes, which are to support these funds, depending on contingencies, upon exports, imports, and consumptions, must necessarily be of a very uncertain amount, but they have always been considerably more than was sufficient to answer the charge upon them. The surpluses, therefore, of the three great national funds, the aggregate, general, and south sea funds, over and above the interest and annuities charged upon them, are directed by statute third George I, C. 7, to be carried together, and to attend the disposition of Parliament, and are usually denominated the sinking fund, because originally destined to sink and lower the national debt. To this have since been added many other entire duties, granted in subsequent years, and the annual interest of the sums borrowed and their respective credits is charged on and payable out of the produce of the sinking fund. However, the neat surpluses and savings, after all deductions paid, amount annually to a very considerable sum, particularly in the year ending at Christmas, 1764, to about two millions and a quarter. For, as the interest on the national debt has been at several times reduced, by the consent of the proprietors, who had their option either to lower their interest or be paid their principal, the savings from the appropriated revenues must needs be extremely large. This sinking fund is the last resort of the nation, on which alone depend all the hopes we can ever entertain of discharging or moderating our encumbrances. And therefore the prudent application of the large sums, now arising from this fund, is a point of the utmost importance, and well worth the serious attention of Parliament, which has thereby been enabled, in this present year, 1765, to reduce above two millions sterling of the public debt. But before any part of the aggregate fund, the surpluses whereof are one of the chief ingredients that form the sinking fund, can be applied to diminish the principal of the public debt, it stands mortgaged by Parliament to raise an annual sum for the maintenance of the King's household and the civil list. For this purpose, in the late reigns, the produce of certain branches of the excise and customs, the post-office, the duty on wine licenses, the revenues of the remaining crown lands, the profits arising from courts of justice, which articles include all the hereditary revenues of the crown, and also a clear annuity of one hundred and twenty thousand pounds sterling in money, were settled on the king for life, for the support of his majesty's household, and the honour and dignity of the crown. And as the amount of these several branches was uncertain, though in the last reign they were generally computed to raise almost a million, if they did not arise annually to eight hundred thousand pounds, the Parliament engaged to make up the deficiency. But his present majesty having, soon after his accession, spontaneously signified his consent, that his own hereditary revenues might be so disposed of as might best conduce to the utility and satisfaction of the public, and having graciously accepted the limited sum of eight hundred thousand pounds per annum for the support of his civil list, and that also charged with three life annuities, to the Princess of Wales, the Duke of Cumberland, and the Princess Amelie, to the amount of seventy-seven thousand pounds, the said hereditary and other revenues are now carried into and made a part of the aggregate fund, and the aggregate fund is charged with the payment of the whole annuity to the crown of eight hundred thousand pounds per annum. Hereby the revenues themselves, being put under the same care and management as the other branches of the public patrimony, will produce more and be better collected than heretofore, and the public is a gainer of upwards of one hundred thousand pounds per annum by this disinterested bounty of His Majesty.
The civil list, thus liquidated, together with the four millions and three-quarters interest of the national debt, and the two millions and a quarter produced from the sinking fund, make up the seven millions and three-quarters per annum, neat money, which were before stated to be the annual produce of our perpetual taxes, besides the immense, though uncertain, sums arising from the annual taxes on land and malt, but which at an average may be calculated at more than two millions and a quarter, and added to the preceding sum, make the clear produce of the taxes, exclusive of the charge of collecting, which are raised yearly on the people of this country, and returned into the king's exchequer, amount to upwards of ten millions sterling. The expenses defrayed by the civil list are those that in any shape relate to civil government, as the expenses of the household, all salaries to officers of state, to the judges, and every of the king's servants, the appointments to foreign ambassadors, the maintenance of the royal family, the king's private expenses, or privy purse, and other very numerous outgoings, as secret service money, pensions, and other bounties, which sometimes have so far exceeded the revenues appointed for that purpose, that application has been made to Parliament to discharge the debts contracted on the civil list, as particularly in 1724, when one million was granted for that purpose by the statute 11 George I, C. 17. The civil list is indeed properly the whole of the king's revenue in his own distinct capacity, the rest being rather the revenue of the public or its creditors, though collected and distributed again in the name and by the officers of the crown. It now standing in the same place as the hereditary income did formerly, and, as that has gradually diminished, the parliamentary appointments have increased. The whole revenue of Queen Elizabeth did not amount to more than six hundred thousand pounds per year, that of King Charles was eight hundred thousand pounds, and the revenue voted for King Charles the second was one million two hundred thousand pounds, though it never in fact amounted to quite so much. But it must be observed that under these sums were included all manner of public expenses, among which Lord Clarendon, in his speech to the Parliament, computed that the charge of the navy and land forces amounted annually to eight hundred thousand pounds, which was ten times more than before the former troubles. The same revenue, subject to the same charges, was settled on King James the Second, but by the increase of trade and more frugal management, it amounted on an average to a million and a half per annum besides other additional customs granted by the Parliament, which produced an annual revenue of four hundred thousand pounds sterling, out of which his fleet and army were maintained at the yearly expense of one million one hundred thousand pounds sterling. After the Revolution, when Parliament took into its own hands the annual support of the forces, both maritime and military, a civil list revenue was settled on the new king and queen, amounting, with the hereditary duties, to seven hundred thousand pounds per annum and the same was continued to Queen Anne and King George I. That of King George II, we have seen, was nominally augmented to eight hundred thousand pounds, and in fact was considerably more. But that of his present majesty is expressly limited to that sum, and by reason of the charges upon it, amounts at present to little more than seven hundred thousand pounds sterling. And upon the whole it is doubtless much better for the crown, and also for the people, to have the revenue settled upon the modern footing rather than the ancient. For the crown, because it is more certain, and collected with greater ease. For the people, because they are now delivered from the feudal hardships, and other odious branches of the prerogative. And though complaints have sometimes been made of the increase of the civil list, yet if we consider the sums that have been formerly granted, the limited extent under which it is now established, the revenues and prerogatives given up in lieu of it by the crown, 
and above all, the diminution of the value of money compared with what it was worth in the last century, we must acknowledge these complaints to be void of any rational foundation, and that it is impossible to support that dignity, which a king of Great Britain should maintain, with an income in any degree less than what it is now established by Parliament. This finishes our inquiries into the fiscal prerogatives of the king, or his revenue, both ordinary and extraordinary. We have therefore now chalked out all the principal outlines of this vast title of the law, the supreme executive magistrate, or the king's majesty, considered in his several capacities and points of view. But, before we entirely dismiss this subject, it may not be improper to take a short comparative view of the power of the executive magistrate, or prerogative of the crown, as it stood in former days, and as it stands at present. And we cannot but observe, that most of the laws for ascertaining, limiting, and restraining this prerogative have been made within the compass of little more than a century past, from the petition of right in third Charles I to the present time. So that the powers of the crown are now to all appearances greatly curtailed and diminished since the reign of King James I, particularly by the abolition of the Star Chamber and High Commission Courts in the reign of Charles I, and by the disclaiming of martial law, and the power of levying taxes on the subject by the same prince, by the disuse of forest laws for a century past, and by the many excellent provisions enacted under Charles II, especially the abolition of military tenures, purveyance, and preemption, the Habeas Corpus Act, and the Act to prevent the discontinuance of Parliaments for above three years, and, since the Revolution, by the strong and emphatical words in which our liberties are asserted in the Bill of Rights, an Act of Settlement, by the Act for Triennial, since turned into Septennial Elections, by the exclusion of certain officers from the House of Commons, by rendering the seats of the judges permanent, and their salaries independent, and by restraining the King's pardon from operating on parliamentary impeachments. Besides all this, if we consider how the Crown is impoverished and stripped of all its ancient revenues, so that it greatly depends on the liberality of Parliament for its necessary support and maintenance, we may perhaps be led to think that the balance is inclined pretty strongly to the popular scale, and that the executive magistrate has neither independence nor power enough left to form that check upon the Lords and Commons which the founders of our Constitution intended. But, on the other hand, it is to be considered that every prince in the first Parliament after his accession has by long usage a truly royal addition to his hereditary revenue settled upon him for his life, and has never any occasion to apply to Parliament for supplies, but upon some public necessity of the whole realm. This restores to him that constitutional independence, which at his first accession seems, it must be owned, to be wanting." And then, with regard to power, we may find perhaps that the hands of government are at least sufficiently strengthened, and that an English monarch is now in no danger of being overborne by either the nobility or the people. The instruments of power are not perhaps so open and avowedly as they formerly were, and therefore are the less liable to jealous and invidious reflection, but they are not the weaker upon that account. In short, our national debt and taxes, besides the inconveniences before mentioned, have also, in their natural consequence, thrown such a weight of power into the executive scale of government, as we cannot think was intended by our patriot ancestors, who gloriously struggled for the abolition of the then formidable parts of the prerogative, and by an unaccountable want of foresight established this system in their stead. 
the entire collection and management of so vast a revenue, being placed in the hands of the Crown, have given rise to such a multitude of new officers, created by and removable at the royal pleasure, that they have extended the influence of government to every corner of the nation. Witness the commissioners, and the multitude of dependents on the customs, in every port of the kingdom, the commissioners of excise, and their numerous subalterns, in every inland district, the postmasters and their servants, planted in every town, and upon every public road, the commissioners of the stamps and their distributors, which are full as scattered and full as numerous, the officers of the salt duty, which, though a species of excise and conducted in the same manner, are yet made a distinct corps from the ordinary managers of that revenue, the surveyors of houses and windows, the receivers of the land-tax, the managers of lotteries, and the commissioners of hackney-coaches, all which are either immediately or immediately appointed by the crown, and removable at pleasure without any reason assigned. These, it requires but little penetration to see, must give that power, on which they depend for subsistence, and influence most amazingly extensive. To this may be added the frequent opportunities of conferring particular obligations, by preference in loans, subscriptions, tickets, remittances, and other money transactions, which will greatly increase this influence, and that over those persons whose attachment, on account of their wealth, is frequently the most desirable." All this is the natural, though perhaps the unforeseen, consequence of erecting our funds of credit, and to support them establishing our present perpetual taxes, the whole of which is entirely new since the Restoration in 1660, and by far the greatest part since the Revolution in 1688. And the same may be said with regard to the officers in our numerous army, and the places which the army has created." All which put together gives the executive power so persuasive and energy with respect to the persons themselves, and so prevailing an interest with their friends and families, as will amply make amends for the loss of external prerogative. But, though this profusion of officers should have no effect on individuals, there is still another newly acquired branch of power, and that is, not the influence only, but the force of a disciplined army, paid indeed ultimately by the people, but immediately by the crown raised by the crown, officered by the crown, commanded by the crown. They are kept on foot, it is true, only from year to year, and that by the power of Parliament, but during that year they must, by the nature of our Constitution, if raised at all, be at the absolute disposal of the crown, and there need but few words to demonstrate how great a trust is thereby reposed in the prince by his people, a trust that is more than equivalent to a thousand little troublesome prerogatives. Add to all this, that besides the civil list, the immense revenue of seven million sterling, which is annually paid to the creditors of the public, or carried to the sinking fund, is first deposited in the royal exchequer, and thence issued out to the respective offices of payment. This revenue the people can never refuse to raise, because it is made perpetual by act of Parliament, which also, when well considered, will appear to be a trust of great delicacy and high importance." Upon the whole, therefore, I think it is clear, that whatever may have become of the nominal, the real power of the crown has not been too far weakened by any transactions in the last century. Much is indeed given up, but much is also acquired. The stern commands of prerogative have yielded to the milder voice of influence. The slavish and exploded doctrine of non-resistance has given way to a military establishment by law, and to the disuse of parliaments has succeeded a parliamentary trust of an immense perpetual revenue. When, indeed, by the free operation of the sinking fund, our national debts shall be lessened, 
when the posture of foreign affairs, and the universal introduction of a well-planned and national militia, will suffer our formidable army to be thinned and regulated, and when, in consequence of all, our taxes shall be gradually reduced, this adventitious power of the crown will slowly and imperceptibly diminish, as it slowly and imperceptibly rose. But till that shall happen, it will be our special duty, as good subjects and good Englishmen, to reverence the crown, and yet guard against corrupt and servile influence from those who are entrusted with its authority, to be loyal yet free, obedient and yet independent, and above everything to hope that we may long, very long, continue to be governed by a sovereign, who in all these public acts that have personally proceeded from himself, hath manifested the highest veneration for the free constitution of Britain, hath already, in more than one instance, remarkably strengthened its outworks, and will therefore never harbour a thought, or adopt a persuasion, in any way the remotest degree detrimental to public liberty. End of section 34